0: We'll be reading from a familiar passage if you've been with us on Wednesday nights as we've been going through Revelation. But we're going to read from chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Actually, we'll begin in verse 2. We'll skip the intro, which uh, basically specifically addresses the gathering of believers in Ephesus. We'll go down through verse 5, and then we'll pray and preach. I know thy works, the Lord Jesus said, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And has tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and has found them to be liars, and hast borne, and has patience, and for my name's sake hast labored and just refused to quit. Nevertheless I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works. Otherwise, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of God's word. The title of today's message to our church through the church of Ephesus is simply the Ephesian warning. Let's pray. Father, bless now our time of study. And again, Lord, I pray that uh, uh, my mind would be focused and clear, Lord, that I'd be able to enunciate, uh, Lord, that the, uh, the, uh, the thoughts that you place in my mind would be clear and constructive. And that, Lord, the the truths that we teach, these biblical truths, would be easily uh, digested by our congregation. Lord, teach us from your word. We want to please you in everything that we do. Lord, there's never a time that we want to fail you. There's never a time we want to disappoint you. I pray that you bless now this time of study. We ask this all humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. And I beg your pardon. I, I, I just, uh, I'm so embarrassed really with the way my body functions anymore. You know, with the, the throat cancer that I had ate away a lot of my soft palate. So whereas you have a sinus cavity and then a throat, uh, I, I have just one big sinus cavity and throat together, uh, and sometimes it's very difficult to teach, and sometimes I make strange noises. I beg your pardon. I really do. <laughs> but anyway, at least, at least I've, I've been able to learn to talk uh, to some degree, and am able to continue uh, to do what God has called me to do. All right, let's, let's begin. Of course, the city of Ephesus was the most beautiful and cosmopolitan of all the cities in Asia, had a population of over 150,000. In fact it was second only to Rome in its greatness. It was nicknamed the Queen of Asia and she was actually the Roman capital of this province and this was in fact the chief harbor in West Asia. So the flow of goods going from east to west would have come through Ephesus on its way to Greece and Rome or from Greece and Rome. It was an extremely wealthy and beautiful city located near the mouth of what is now called the Lower Meander River. It was architecturally superb. The main street through the city was lined with columns and statues and fountains. It was some 70 feet wide as it ran the length and breadth of the city. It had streetlights, obviously not gas or electric, but street lights that were illuminated nightly running the length of these thoroughfares and therefore illuminating this city. Ephesus was also the headquarters of the worship of the fertility goddess Dionysus, also known as Ishtar. Now, just on a side note, in Christianity, after Constantine's profession, we've conflated pagan holidays with Christian holidays. And that's why we have Easter eggs and bunnies, and we call it Easter, as the resurrection and Passover was conflated with Ishtar. So there are some issues, you know, in our day and age... Uh, you know, we've just kind of Americanized everything that we do, and I know that there's no ill will there, but if you wonder where Easter eggs come from, if you wonder why we have an Easter bunny, well, it's all about fertility, and the fertility goddess Ishtar, so that's the background of that. But nevertheless, this temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times larger than the Pantheon in, in Athens. Some 340 feet long. So next week as we watch the Super Bowl, recognize that from inline to inline, you've got what? 300 feet plus, um, it was it was the length of a football field from inline to inline or goalpost to goalpost and 165 feet wide. Surrounded by 120 columns and those columns, many of which were, were labeled, covered with gold and jewels. Now part of a prominent characteristic of all idolatry was sexual immorality. And in fact, with her being the fertility goddess, it was even increased to the nth degree. When you went to the temple, it was not like going to synagogue where you would have Torah study and prayer. When you went to temple, you would bring some sort of a sacrifice. You would bring money, of course, to give to the temple. And then there was a cult of Diana that used sexual prostitutes and sexual prostitution at temple where the devotee would become joined with the goddess through her uh, ritual prostitutes and priestesses ensuring their favor uh, for growth of crops and other fertility ideas throughout the coming year. Now, unlike the other six churches that are mentioned in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which make the seven churches of Asia, Most of these we don't have a lot of other background information about. However, with Ephesus, we have a great deal of information about Ephesus in the Bible. As a matter of fact, uh, the entire chapter of Acts chapter 19 is devoted to Paul's time in Ephesus. And as we study that chapter, we find out that Ephesus was an amazing church and recognize that this church was made up of former idol-worshiping Gentile pagans that were radically born again. And they had such a transformation in their lives and affected and impacted the culture of their city so greatly that eventually the Ephesus Chamber of Commerce rioted against these new Christians because they were killing their tourism business and they were killing the ability to sell these silver shrines of Diana. That a, that a pilgrim could come to the temple, do their worship, and then take home their own shrine. They were literally killing the economy there locally because of the impact on Christianity on this wicked idolatry. In fact, in verse 29, we see the culmination with a great riot there that took place at the 25,000-seat theater there that you can see in the background of that picture. So this was Ephesus, and it was to this church that John the Apostle on the Isle of Patmos was instructed to write along with six other churches which represent all of the church age. But our text in part, John was told to initially commend this great church in Ephesus. And we see in Revelation chapter 2 verse 2 that God said, "Hey, I am well aware of the work that you do. You are busy beavers. I'm aware of your deeds. I'm aware of your actions. I'm aware of your toil and weariness. You never quit. You never wear out. Your tenacity is amazing. I'm aware of your, your patience, your your consistency, your endurance. Even though they were tired, they refused to quit as these three allude. These, the, these three things in these, as verse 3 alludes. They just refused to stop fighting against the devil. And they were commended for their... Diligence in protecting pure biblical truth against those that were trying to pervert it. And they recognized Satan's strategy to tempt man to sin and to tempt man into failure. Satan doesn't appear as a red-horned uh, devil or dragon trying to get you to willfully defy God. But he attends as an angel of light, uh, twisting the truth just slightly so that you miss the truth and miss the target and trying to allure you that what you are choosing to do is actually a good thing. Well, the gathering of believers in Ephesus had been faithful to discern those that were true apostles from those that weren't. They were able to discern the truth from the deception, and they were able to refute the deception effectively and efficiently. This was a sin-hating, error-fighting, Jesus-loving assembly of believers. This was a theologically strong church. If George Barna walked in there and gave them a biblical worldview test, I'm sure they would have all passed with flying colors as they knew the right answers. However, the Lord did have an issue with them. They had lost their first love, as the King James Version translates. But actually, I think more accurately, the complete Jewish Bible translated as such. They had lost that innocent love that they had when they were first saved, when they were first new believers. They had lost that honeymoon love. You say, well, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, folks, this is not a problem that was unique to Ephesus. As a matter of fact, the reason we're talking about it is so that we can be aware of it when it raises its ugly head and we be prepared to do as they did and refute the error and then hopefully do what they didn't do, respond to their criticism and the call to repentance. But Satan has the same strategic attack on any church. And it results in the same decay in every church. Let me give you another example. This from the first church that existed. That first church in Jerusalem. We see in Acts chapter 1 that there was only a small group of Jesus followers that were together in unity and prayer. In fact, their number was only 120. Among their number... You had the 11 apostles that were remaining alive. Of course, we know that Judas Iscariot went and hanged himself the night of Jesus' crucifixion. We find Mary, the mother of Jesus, named specifically among this group. We also know that James... The half-brother of Jesus, who would become the first pastor of this church in Jerusalem, is also named among this group. And it says that some of Jesus's other half-brothers were amongst this group. But in entirety, there were 120 of them, a ragtag remnant of believers, many of them women we not high on the social scale in those days. Men, uh, and of the men, they weren't uh, politicians or rich men. Most of them were ex-fishermen. You had an ex-tax collector, Matthew. You had carpenters and stonemasons. This wasn't a collection of wealthy, influential, politically uh, active men are, and women. This was largely a group of 120 nobodies. Now, first of all, that ought to be encouraging to all of us is what God needs or what God uses. But verse 14 of Acts 1 says this, they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brother. And you note there that Jesus had more than one. We know about James, had more than one that were half brothers. Now, this Greek word that's translated of one accord literally means in harmony. Just like we heard the pianists earlier in our services today. They can hit two or three or four different keys, but if they hit the right keys at the same time, then that makes a great it makes a chord, it makes a, a great sound as those strings are reverberating together and making a sound in perfect harmony. That's the word that's used. This early church, 120 of them, were in perfect harmony. Harmony in prayer in the upper room. So I would say, up to this point, as we're looking at the issues with this first church, so far so good. Then, of course, we know 50 days after the resurrection, we see Pentecost and understand God's brilliance. How do you disseminate a, a, a significant piece of information to the entire world quickly and efficiently? Well, today you might post it on social media. Or you might send out an email or some other form of advertising, but that wasn't available to them back uh, 2,000 years ago. But in every Jewish holy day, Jewish men that now lived literally around the world, you had Jewish men living in Alexandria, Egypt, you had Jewish men literally living in Babylon of Chaldea, you had Jewish men living as far away as Spain and Rome, and and, in fact there was a heavy Jewish presence in Spain, but, but Rome and Greece and Asia... But during the three festivals, the spring festival of Passover, the summer festival of Pentecost, and the fall festival of Tabernacles, these Jewish men were required by the law to come back to Israel and appear before the Lord and present a sacrifice. So God brought the world to Jerusalem. And that's when we saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. These remaining 11 disciples that assembled there with this 120, and they were able to see the miraculous uh, signs that God demonstrated. Again, the pillar of flames above their heads. It only happened this one day. And remember, thinking as a Jew, why that was so significant. Because in Jewish history, the pillar of flame was what led the Israelites through the wilderness for those 40 years. That represented the Shekinah, the, the glory of God. And, and when they would set up for a camp above the tabernacle, above the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant sat, would be the pillar of flame above the tabernacle. And that indicated to all the Jews that the presence of God, the glory of God, the Shekinah was inside that tabernacle. Well, now you had the 120, each of them with a little pillar of flame above their heads. What do you think that symbolized? That the presence of God now indwelt them as tabernacles. And then, of course, Peter came out and preached that great message that's recorded in Acts chapter 2, that Jesus of Nazareth, whom they had crucified, had, in fact, risen from the grave, had ascended to the right hand of the Father because He was, in fact, their promised King, the promised Messiah. And, of course, we see that 3,000 made public professions of faith that day through immersion, going through the ceremonial mikvah. Of course, this being a high-holding... There, there were, I've shown you pictures, but there are literally evidences, archaeologically, of, of baptismal areas all around, the tab- all around the temple because you would go through the, and, and go through the cleansing before you would go up uh, to the temple complex itself. But, of course, (coughs) this being a high holy day with hundreds of thousands of Jews here, they actually got in a water source. The pool of Siloam was a source of water for the city, and they would have gotten in the pool of Siloam. Now, how many of you would be excited about a whole bunch of people bathing in your drinking water? Well, I probably wouldn't be too excited about that either, but nevertheless, that's the way it happened. But understand how important this was. These weren't secret agent Christians. 3,000 made public professions by going through the mikvah, declaring that they were, in fact, followers of this Jesus of Nazareth. Then we see in chapter 4, uh, or chapter 3 and 4, Peter and John going to the temple in the hour of prayer, and coming across the, the man that was there been lame for over 30 years, laying there asking for alms, and, and said, alms, alms, Peter, give me some, may I have some or sir, may I have some money? And Peter looked at him and said, silver and gold, we don't have any. We're, we're, we're Baptist, not charismatic, sorry. But what we have, we give unto you. In the name of Jesus and Nazareth, get up and walk. Now understand, it was not the faith of this 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 sick man. This sick man is looking at these guys hoping for enough money for lunch. The idea of being healed was not even on his mind. This was, So when, when you hear that argument that, well, you just don't have enough faith, otherwise God would heal you, that is simply not true, and I can prove it not true by many, many, many examples, this being one of them. So this guy is sitting here looking for money. Peter reaches down, grabs him by the hand, jerks him up. Next thing you know, he's running around like Jesse Owens or some track star. And with this great miracle that was witnessed by thousands there, Peter again had a chance to preach the gospel boldly. And we see another 5,000 were saved. And then the Scripture tells us that others were added daily. So as we're looking at this first church, what you would think would be the epitome of churches, birthed in the aftermath of Pentecost, again, so far, so good. Then we see an unexpected need. Of course, we just talked about it a little bit. As these new believers were had come to Jerusalem, they had planned on this being like a seven to ten-day trip, leaving their homes, leaving their businesses, coming to Jerusalem. Obviously, they would have had to bring enough money for travel to and then back home. They they didn't bring their entire life savings, they didn't have a debit card from their Merrill Lynch account. All they had was what they brought with them, and then they were gloriously saved, and they were expecting the return of Christ even then. They thought the return of Christ was going to happen within the next few days or weeks, and in theory, it could have if Israel had recognized Jesus holy and hit their knees in repentance, but they didn't. So here you had this group, and now it had been weeks and perhaps even months, and they had run out of money. They didn't have jobs. Their homes were maybe hundreds of miles away in Alexandria or or all the way back over in Athens or, or in Thessalonica or someplace like that. Here they are in Jerusalem. didn't have jobs. They didn't have money. didn't have access to a checkbook or credit card. What would they do? Well, that's when the church stepped in. And we find that those that had assets of their own accord, they weren't commanded to do this. This wasn't a collective. This was a situation where you see a brother in Christ that has a need, You may have the ability to help them in that need, and you choose. That's why it's called charity, the same word. The word in 1 Corinthians 13 that's translated charity is actually agape, which is God's love. You have the the opportunity to demonstrate God's love by helping this person in their time of need, and that's exactly what happened. Of course, we know about Barnabas and then others that did what they needed to do to provide for these that had the need. Again, so far, so good. Then the devil sticks his nose into the church's business and recognize the change in strategy. Note this as we go past it. He knows man's weaknesses well. And Satan uses the same three temptations to tempt any man among mankind. Because we're all wired the same, we all are susceptible to the same temptations. The three temptations Satan uses are defined in 1 John chapter 2. The lust of the eyes the desire for things, the lust of the flesh, the desire for physical gratification, or we might say thrills, and then finally, the pride of life, theories, fame, power, and the like. These were the very tools that Satan used to tempt Adam and Eve successfully and as you look back at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, you'll find it was this same uh, uh, trilogy uh, of tools that he used on Jesus, but with Jesus it was unsuccessful. So that's the strategy for attacking individuals. Now, in every church, he's going to first attack from outside where the church through intimidation or threatening or physical pain or suffering. I can tell you back in 2006, um, 2007, 2008, when we first participated in Pulpit Freedom Sunday uh, with Alliance Defense Fund, I got a letter from Barry Lynn, who was an attorney that had himself declared a or made a, a, a ordained minister in some cult, and then would write these threatening letters to pastors threatening us that uh, if we didn't toe the line and stop talking about conservative issues regarding politics, that we could lose our 501c3. And I got, got a letter saying, we'll, I'll turn you in. I called him and said, I've already turned myself in. Buzz off. But understand, they will try to intimidate. That's what they did there. We see the arrest of the apostles. We see the beatings of the apostles. We see open persecution. But that kind of attack only makes a strong church stronger as it grows in its resolve. So if the devil can't crush you from without, mark this down, the next step always seeks to divide from within. And the standard weapon he uses for access is pride. Throughout Scripture, the contrast between humility and pride is one of the most clear distinctives that the Bible uses To contrast a spirit-filled life with a life that's governed by the flesh. So the next thing we see in the church in Jerusalem is we see two church members seeking glory for themselves, i.e. the pride of life, that being Ananias and Sapphira. Of course, we know what their sin was. They didn't have to give anything to the poor at church. And when they sold the property, they weren't required to give it all to the church. But what upset God was that they sold their property, told the church that they gave all the proceeds to their property. You know why? They wanted to have the new wing of the church named after them, the new Ananias and Sapphira Fellowship Hall. And they declared that they had given all the money when, in fact, they would only given half. God said you have lied to the Holy Spirit in that case. of course, we know what happened to them. Then the next thing we see is literally recorded actual bias and discrimination as the Judean Jews were actually mistreating. Now, this is not an accusation. It actually is proven when you look at the text. They were actually guilty of mistreating the new believers or the, the new uh, uh, church members from around the empire. We would call them the Hellenistic Jews. The Judean Jews lived in Judah... The Hellenistic Jews were Jews ethnically and perhaps even religiously, but they lived outside of the Holy Land. They may have still lived in Babylon or lived in Greece or somewhere else. They were called Hellenistic Jews. They all came back. They all heard the same message. 3,000 were saved, 5,000 more were saved. You had this mix from Judea and then from the outer parts of the world. And we find that they were actually, when they were actually trying to take care of the needs of the believers in that church, that there was legitimate discrimination against the, the newbies. The Hellenists from outside the the area of Judea. Now get that, folks. Even in this fabulous first church in Jerusalem, in the immediate aftermath of the glory of Pentecost, this great church was actually guilty of neglect and petty bias. And it was this point that we first see the reason that deacons were instituted in the New Testament. By the way, you can remember this. Never be surprised when people act like people. Even Christians who shouldn't, but we do. Every one of us have days where we're just out of control, selfish or whiny or petty or feel sorry for me. All of us have days like that. You just don't want to live there day after day after day. Every now and then you might be just weak and tired and worn out and you may feel sorry for yourself. Well, throw a quick pity party, then get over it and get on with life. But just as God gave Moses the 70 To help him shepherd and care for the children of Israel as he led them through the wilderness, deacons were called specifically to assist the apostles of Jerusalem in the care for the needs of the congregation. So let me give you a picture of what our calling is, even using a metaphor that Jesus uses. So we have this flock of sheep that we will call the church. Then we have Jesus, who is the good shepherd, Psalm 22, the, the, I'm sorry, uh, the good shepherd, uh, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd, as defined in the book of Psalms. Then we have the pastor, who is the under-shepherd, reporting to Jesus, charged with leading, feeding, and protecting a local flock, according to Ephesians 4.11. And then you have deacons, which are like watchdogs, assisting the under-shepherd in protecting the flock. So if you want to see a flow chart of our church, that's what it looks like right there. Or that's what it's supposed to look like. We've got pastor, deacons, but the Lord Jesus, it's His church. We all answer to Him. Now, folks, here's the thing. We are are Fairview Baptist Church... A.K.A. Liberty Church of Edmond. We're living here in 2024. We think of ourselves as being a pretty dedicated, pretty strong, uh, pretty, pretty uh, uh, dogmatic, uh, pretty uh, active, engaged, uh, biblical church. But we better be careful that we don't ever get overconfident to not recognize that if the first church in Jerusalem was capable of succumbing to this temptation and failure, then we'd better be analyzing our own conduct. And here's how we do this. Each of us individually examines ourselves daily... In light of Scripture, through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, asking God to reveal to each of us, I, I, I don't want, please, oh, dear Lord, please reveal to me all the errors in Dr. Gibson's life so I can tell him what he needs to prove. that's not what they had to Dear Lord, reveal to me all the areas in my life that aren't on target. I want my behavior to be corrected. I can control my behavior. So, Holy Spirit, reveal it to me and examine me. And sometimes we do have boorish behavior. And when we recognize it, what are you supposed to do? Do you know what repentance means? We had that time of repentance in D.C. last week. In fact, I got a text from Garlow last night. He commented, and we were in a group text. Actually, Congressman Burkeen was on this text. And I said, now, you know, we are very good at prayers of repentance. Now, what's the other part of that? You're supposed to have actions of repentance that accompany your prayers of repentance. Kind of goes on with our message last week. Pray as if it's all on God, then you put shoe leather to your prayers as if it's all uh, on you. So we're to examine ourselves daily—not only what we do uh, or how we're behaving towards others, but why we do what we do. Because one day at the judgment seat of Christ, we won't even—we won't just be rewarded for what we've done, but all, also the motivation behind what we've done. And in the best that we can, day by day. And here's the thing: we'll never achieve perfection. But that shouldn't stop us from striving for it every day after we wake up. And and remember this, church family. This is the area that the first church in Jerusalem fell short. This is the area that this great church in Ephesus fell short. And it's the area that all of us can fall short if we're not careful. But remember what Jesus commanded his disciples the last night before his arrest. He said, here's the, the commandment. I want you to love each other as I have loved you. So you love you one for another. As a matter of fact, it's not by the number of tracts that you have in your pocket or how many Bibles you own or how many times you've memorized the Bible or, or read through the Bible or how many passages of Scripture memory you have. All of that is good stuff. But Jesus said the way you should be recognized by the world is by the love that you have one for another. That's what pleases the Lord Jesus. Now... With all of that, back to Ephesus, and then we'll be finished. Now, we've already seen that this church was commended for being doctrinally sound and persevering in good works. They had the tenacity of a pit bull. They just refused to quit their work. However, they had lost the love that they had at the first. And we aren't left to speculate about the problems of that great church. Again, I reference Paul. Paul's uh, trip there as recorded in Acts chapter 19. We have other glancing references throughout the Scripture. But then we have the book of Ephesians. Paul, while sitting in prison in Rome, pours out his heart to the, in this letter to the church in Ephesus. Paul spends the first three chapters uh, revealing and, and, and confirming wonderful, treasured church doctrine, biblical doctrine. Then Paul transitions into some application. And Paul says this, beginning in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, and recognize he was. He was in jail in Rome while he's writing this. And his reason for being there is because he was a Christian. I beg you, That you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. In other words, you call yourself Christians, act like it. With all lowliness, that would be humility. Meekness, meekness does not mean weakness. Meekness is power under control. Meekness is submission. Meekness is, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Said the son to the father: Lonely, humility, meekness, and long suffering—that patience, forbearing one another, putting up with each other in agape, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. That I would tra- you could also translate that to stay in one accord in the bond of peace." In fact, Jesus summarized the entirety of God's law with two commandments. He said, here's what you have to do. Remember to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength, and remember to love your neighbor as yourself. Ladies and gentlemen, just like that first church in Jerusalem, just like this great church in Ephesus, they had lost their first love that they once had. They were still doctrinally sound. They were still active in engaging the culture, but the, the congregation was not marked with that honeymoon innocent love, but now harshness, pride, and division. And then Paul continues to remind them of the unity of the body. He says, the whole body fitly joined together or unified together by that which every joint supplieth. You know what? When I was a football player, there were 11 of us on the field at any one time. You had the offensive unit, you had the defensive unit, you had special teams. We all played a part. Not a single one of us did it all. All of us played a role. If one of us didn't do our job, then the play was not successful. All 11 of us had to do what we were supposed to do, and then you could have a successful execution of a play. Hey, we're to be unified in that which every joint supplieth. We all play a part according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of the body itself itself. In love, then he goes on to say once again, in the next verse, what is that verse twenty eight don 't behave like lost people. And then he picks it back up verse twenty nine he gives some details. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth in fact, Next week, I think we 'll come back and we 'll deal with what evil speaking is in Judaism. Uh, a lot of things that we have read in the gospels we have not defined completely accurately. Because we have forgotten our Jewish roots. We don't know what they were talking about when, these, when this terminology was, used, was was being used. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Let me just stop for a minute. If my mom told me no, and if I disobeyed her, she was going to whip me, Would that be, uh, would that be evil speaking? But it was kind of harsh... Might hurt my feelings. I might not like hearing it. However, it would actually be love because my mother loved me enough to tell me no when I was doing something that would get me in trouble or could hurt me. That was edifying to the body. We'll deal with that probably more next week. Uh, and grieve not the Holy Spirit. Don't break the Lord's heart whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness or poison, fury, Anger, clamor, that word clamor means to intentionally sow seeds of discord, to intentionally try to create division. Can you imagine that's even having to be addressed here, this church in Ephesus? But it was, we're reading it. And evil speaking, that means to injure another through a rumor. Let that all, don't break God's heart by participating in this this evil speech, but Put that away from you, and all malice to malign someone. And instead, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. So you want to know what Ephesus' problem was? Paul tells us what the problem was, specifically. They'd lost that love that they first had as new believers. Apparently, they didn't listen. Some 30 years later, we find in our text that we read this morning that John is writing this very church. And what he says to them is, I know your work, I know your tenacity, I know you're faithful in all these things doctrinally. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember from whence thou art fallen and repent, change direction, and go back and do what you were doing at the first. Or else, boy, you don't ever like to hear that, or else, do you? Or else I will come unto thee quickly. And I will, or suddenly, I will just leap in and, and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except now repent. So this church, doctrinally sound, but they had lost the love that they had the first. And John told them that if they did not repent, that their candle would be removed. To What's that referring? They were either, if they didn't do what God was wanting them to do, they were, they're, either their responsibility would be replaced, or maybe their church altogether would be replaced. And if you go look at the at the uh, uh, remains of, of Ephesus, you recognize that the whole city is gone by this point in time. I had great, a, a, a period of great joy this week. By the way, we've, we've had some long weeks, and they are long work weeks. Uh, those of you that think uh, ministry is easy... I should have spent 17 hours with me yesterday as I was preparing messages for today. This is a this is a job. I love that Oh, pastors only work two hours a week. <laughs> yeah yeah, okay. <laughs> great. Uh, I want that job. But I had great joy this week as uh, I forget what day it was, but I was counseling a young couple that's preparing to get married, and uh, one is a brand new Christian. And the other had grown up in church but had not, had gone, had all the church stuff, was full of church stuff. But just recently had a real vibrant relationship and understood what a walk with the Lord was. And boy, just spending time with them. We, we actually, normally I counsel, fortunately this last appointment I had, we spent two hours together. Because quite frankly, they were as encouraging to me as I was to them in their marital counseling. You know, Normally, it's scheduled like 45 minute blocks, but this is the end of the day. I went up, we didn't leave here until like 6.30. But they were so sweet and so hungry to be discipled and so humble to learn, recognizing that there was so much that they didn't know. And they were so innocent in their demeanor and excited about their love for Jesus. I can remember when I had gotten right with the Lord, I was almost 26, it was after my third season at Chicago. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd grown up in home. I'd had the Bible. I'd been memorizing the Bible, all that since I was a kid. I think the first words I ever learned were John 3, 16. I had that kind of a background. But I remember at the age of 26, after I'd been away from the Lord, clearly away from the Lord for five years in college, and then three years, my first three years of pro ball, and then when I, when I came face-to-face with Jesus and I hit my knees, there, there was such a sweet time there where you're just hungry for Bible verses and, and finding out where the Bible says this. And I believe that, but why do I believe that? Where does the Bible say that? And going over and finding that verse and doing all that Scripture memory. And it was it was just so sweet and innocent. But, folks, it doesn't take long to lose the innocence and joy of new believers together in one accord where it's all about Jesus. But then we quickly become professional church members. And sadly, it seems the longer we do church, we become professional at doing church, and we're all experts in doing church, and we become less sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and there's just the simple uh, innocence and purity of a daily walk with the Lord Jesus led by the Holy Spirit. I, I want us to get back to that first love. I want all of us to be there. I want it to be just an, an innocent, marvelous time of discovery when we come together in fellowship. And we study the Word together and try to grow together. And we're going to pick up next week and continue this thought process. But I want to leave you with three verses before we have an invitation and, and close for today. First Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Now these are just some biblical truths for us to, to apply. This happens to be the complete Jewish version. I, of course, I, I, K, KJV is my uh, main uh, scripture translation. It's a word-for-word translation. But as you've heard me talk before, there are some times where uh, understanding the thought and the width and breadth of, the, of a possible uh, word in Hebrew can be translated is of great help. I, I like the KJ, uh, the uh, complete Jewish version. It says this, concerning love for the brother. Now, this is written in another church, church that's like it. We don't need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to agape each other, to love each other. And you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonius. You're doing a good job, but we urge you, brothers, to do even better. Also, make it your ambition to live quietly, to mind your own business, and to earn your living by your own efforts, just as we told you, then your daily life will gain the respect of outsiders and will not be dependent on anyone. We'll give you a couple of secrets of, of, of living the Christian life. You live the Christian life one day at a time. It makes it a lot simpler. You know, it's hard to say, I pledge to be a great husband for the rest of my life. I'm going to try to do that it's a whole lot easier for me to set the goal that between now, which is 9.35, and midnight tonight when I go to bed, I'm going to be a great husband today and focus on just getting from now until bed being a great husband. Hey, from now until I go to bed tonight, I'm going to not spread any gossip. I may, I may fail sometimes. I may, may have a bad day. And you know what? What's good about living life one day at a time is when you blow it one day, it doesn't carry over to the next. You get to bed that night, you hit your knees say, Lord, forgive me, I blew it today. And then you wake up the next morning and say, Lord, thank you for a new day. Holy Spirit, fill me, lead me, guide me. May I glorify you in everything that I do today. So literally one day at a time, from now until midnight, be the husband that God wants you to be. From now until midnight, be the wife that God wants you to be. From now until midnight, be the parents that God wants you to be. From now until midnight, be the church member that God wants you to be. That's forbearing with love for the unity of the body, loving one another, encouraging one another. Hey, from now until midnight, I'm not going to lose my temper. Can not do that. Bears aren't playing. I've got a good chance. But the Christian life is lived by doing the right thing one day at a time. And as I said a moment ago, aim for perfection every day, but recognize that we're all descendants of Adam, and we're going to blow it on occasion. There's going to be times where you are whiny. You're tired, and it's just not fair. Life's not fair. We're all there. You know what, we know what I've discovered in being a pastor? This room and this, this, this is no different than junior high was really. There are times where I act like I'm 61. There are times I act like I'm six. And you do too. The reality is you want to minimize those times. And then if you and a husband and wife are working together, when the wife is a little weaker and she's not doing the job that she needs to be doing, well, the husband needs to have a little extra measure of grace that day and help her get to midnight. And then on days when the husband's a little whiny and feeling sorry for himself, the wife's got to demonstrate a little extra measure of grace and get him through to midnight that night. But we all are capable of acting like children. There's an old adage, we all start off in diapers whining, and we all end up in diapers whining. As we've all seen, though, you're just not supposed to be holding office of the President of the United States during that period of time. <laughs> but what 1 Thessalonians 4 is telling you is mind your business. Do you know how simple this is? You know, we can fix everything that's wrong in America and overnight. Every individual was responsible for taking care of himself. If Every individual went and worked a full day and, and then worked until they found a job if they didn't have a job. If every individual properly handled the money they earned according to scriptural precepts and budgeted, didn't get into debt... Didn't buy stuff that you can't afford, and then if if couples actually decided, hey, when we get married, we really mean till death do us part, and we're gonna live life together, even though some days are hard. We're gonna live it together. We're gonna raise our kids to to uh, respect proper authority. We're gonna teach our kids to love Jesus. You know, if we had if we had God fearing individuals and we had God fearing families, then you would have God fearing churches, and you'd have God communities, we can literally fix everything that ails the United States of America in 10 years. But we make it so macro. Oh, we need to have a continuing resolution or we need, Congress needs to pass this. No, really, what will fix America is each individual to mind their own business as God would instruct. We'd fix it all with a snap of a finger. Take care of you. Take care of your family. All right, two more verses, and I want you to read these. Just read these, and then read them this week, and I want you to think about these. We're going to build on this next week. Two passages here. We've already got this instruction. Of course, we know we we live life, we live the Christian life one day at a time. That's the Christian walk. One day, I'm going to live for Christ today. I'm not sure, I might even wake up tomorrow, but until now, until midnight, I'm going to honor the Lord. Then you get up tomorrow and you repeat the same thing. We're told that we're supposed to take care of our business, supposed to work under the Lord, take care of our responsibility, take care of our families, be there to help someone else in need if they come to you, but not being a meddler. And then remember these admonitions for Christians. First, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Again, I went to the complete Jewish Bible here. KJV translates it agape, or excuse me, as charity because charity is love in action. When you have to reach into your wallet and use your hard-earned labor to demonstrate love to someone else, I think that's a good translation. However, the word agape is actually love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous of one another. Love is not boastful or arrogant. Love is not rude or selfish. Love does not easily lose its temper and fly off the handle. Love is forgiving. Now, folks, forgiveness is freely given, but trust is earned. So I'm not saying there isn't a difference there. But... Love doesn't keep record of wrongs so that you can bring it up at a later time. Love does not gloat over other people's sins, but takes its delight in the truth. Now, Jesus said last night of his life that we are to love one another. That's this word agape. By that shall all men know you, that you have love one for another. Folks, that's love. Right there. It's not squishy, ooey, gooey, I want to hold your hand and feelings, love. This is active, obedient love. This is act of the will, love. This is agape. And then I want you to recognize the fruit of the Spirit. Now, understand this. This is what naturally we should be producing if we are Christians and being led by the Spirit rather than being subject to the rule of our flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is, that same word, agape, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, self-control. Nothing in the law the Torah forbids such things. Understand why this is important. As great as the church in Jerusalem was, they failed right here. As great as the church in Ephesus was, this was the stumbling block for them. In any of the epistles of the New Testament, this same subject was addressed writing to every church that Paul had any connection with. Why? Because this was a stumbling block that Christians can easily fall into. Why? Aren't we saved? Yes, we are. But you still are a descendant of Adam. We still have that sin nature within us. And we still have a a tendency or a capability of of stumbling and falling. And this is our weak spot. The Bible has identified it over and over and over again. So I'm pointing it out to you. What's going to happen? Am I going to come by every day and check your refrigerator and make sure there's no beer in it? Nope, not my job. But you are going to be on your knees every day, saying, "Lord, thank you for this new day. I'm glad I've got another a day of life. Apparently, you've got some use for me." And as you open your eyes and look around, Lord, thank you for, for central heat and air. I'm thankful I don't have to ran outside and grab firewood and put it in the fireplace right now to get warm. Lord, thank you for carpeting. I'm so glad we don't sweep around a dust floor. I've got all this shag carpeting, or I don't even know why we don't have shag carpeting. Do we? That's out of style now. I don't know what we got. And again, I I I am so thankful that I don't have to go out and milk a cow in the morning. I can walk into my kitchen, open this magic box that keeps stuff cold, and grab a plastic gallon of milk. Boy, and then, okay, Lord, I thank you for running water. Aren't you glad you don't have to run out the back of the house to that little building with a little half moon on the door? I'd have never made it in the Old West. (laughs) I'm a a two-shower-a-day guy. I would have just died back then. There's no way. When's my next bath? Oh, that would be June. Oh. Hmm. (laughs) Just kill me now. (laughs)